It's a woman's dying wish. But all I know is that uh, he was afraid of somebody. At 95 years old, Jean Bichetti just wants to know who killed her brother. That was me so that maybe I could have saved his life. It's been more than 40 years since her brother was stabbed to death. He kept telling me that there's some bad characters in this area. But after all this time, they never found the killer. Somebody knows who did it. I just can't believe that anybody would do that. This is Unsolved, true crime in Western New York. Welcome to Unsolved, true crime in Western New York, where we dive deep into cold cases and unsolved crime in the Western New York region. I'm Leanne Stock. And I'm Amanda Berg. Each week, we're going to dissect a specific unsolved crime and talk to the people directly impacted. As we talked about in our last episode, Unsolved originally began as a weekly television series that was on Channel 2 News Tonight at 11 on WGRZ. We decided to take it to a new platform because we want to continue to tell these stories and we want to try and share the stories to as many people as we possibly can because they're your stories. Western New Yorkers who are still searching for answers. Leanne, this is an emotional week and before we get into the details, why don't you just talk about how you found this case? Yeah, this case came to me from the Buffalo Police Department. Um, We have a close relationship with their public information officer. And he approached me about this cold case from 1980, um, specifically because the sister of the victim back in 1980 has made it her dying wish to get this case solved and to try and figure out what happened to her brother the night that he was murdered. And she's 95 years old. And she regularly checks in with the police department to see if there are any leads or any new information on the case. And as soon as he told me about it, I was like, we have to do this. We have to shine a light on this case. And that's really where this case kind of gets its emotional draws. Just the fact of Jean Bichetti, who's 95 years old, who has really made it her dying wish to get this case solved. Leanne, I'm definitely glad that the police reached out to you with this case, and let's just get right into it. We're taking a step back in time 41 years ago, all the way to December 13th, 1980. Police say a woman, Dorothy Bauer, was taking food to her ex-husband, Robert. He lived on Bernard Street in the South Buffalo area. It was then when police tell us Dorothy Bauer found Robert dead. He was stabbed multiple times in the abdomen, neck, face, and head. A lot about this case are things we do know and there are things that we don't know. And what we do know about Robert, we're told by police that he was disabled and that he lived alone in his apartment. He was retired from his job at the U.S. Post Office. He was 53 years old, divorced, and had three sons. And the original investigating detectives from the Buffalo Police Department surmised that he was murdered during a robbery in his home. According to the notes from the case, there was no forced entry into the home. And this led them to believe that Bauer may have known his attacker. So, in addition to talking to the police, we wanted to get some outside independent information to add to the case. And when I went to the internet to kind of start looking around, there was not much, Leanne. I mean, I found one article from the archives of the Buffalo News, but it was from 1998. Back then, family members were offering $5,000 for any information about what happened, but that's literally it. 
And as you know, I love to really go through all of the databases, all of the different records, and that was the only thing I could find. So Leanne, obviously we work for WGRZ, and in addition to that online article, I wanted to see what was in our own archives. So I went and I looked through our old tapes, and the label of one of them from that day, December 13th, 1980, the label had a line that said, Bernard Street, Stabbing Locators. Now, in TV terms, locators is what you call just getting visuals of the house. So whoever was working that day back then went, got some video of the house, brought it back. They didn't have a lot of info. We weren't able to really watch that because of some technical difficulties, but we do have that confirmed that it did happen. So we have what the police told us. We have that one article from the Buffalo News. We have confirmation from our own WGRZ archives that something happened, some type of stabbing. And then we have the photos, right? You got to see some photos from the Buffalo police. Yes, I did. And I guess even just the fact that we knew that this gained news coverage back then during that time just showed kind of how important this story was when it happened. And when I was speaking with Buffalo Police Captain Jeff Ronaldo, he had placed a stack of photos in front of me, which were the crime scene photos that officers had taken the day that they responded to Robert Bowers' murder. And in them, you see photos that were taken of the exterior of the home, which was in South Buffalo on Bernard Street, as we have been saying. And it showed footprints leading into the house in the doorway. And it showed a house that was cluttered, but everything seemed to be intact. And as you'll hear from police, and as you have heard from police, there appeared to be no forced entry into the home. And these pictures sort of prove that. And Leanne, no forced entry is one of the only things they really had to go off of because as we've learned now from this episode, there was no DNA evidence from back then, which is something that completely blew my mind, which is one of the reasons we ended up talking to a crime expert. So Leanne, with so much limited information, we really had to rely on what the police told us and talking to Robert's sister. Yes, she is a key player in our story today. Um, her name is Jean Piketty. She's Robert's older sister, and she just turned 95 this year. And as we mentioned earlier in this podcast, it's her dying wish to get this case solved. Captain Ronaldo told me that shortly after this homicide happened, Jean created a reward for any information that led to an arrest in her brother's case, which was the reward that we saw in the archived Buffalo News article. Jean still calls the cold case unit regularly to check for updates in the case, to see if anybody's come forward with any information. And when we were having our conversation, she told me deep down, she admits that she feels guilty for what happened that day to her brother, and that maybe she could have saved his life. We're gonna get to all of that. But first, let's start at the beginning. Police were called to the scene when the body uh, was discovered by a former uh, wife of the decedent. Uh, the police were notified and immediately a homicide investigation was undertaken. Uh, at the time, homicide traced down a lot of leads. There was a lot of interviews that were conducted in the case. Neighbors were talked to, canvases were conducted, but unfortunately, they were never able to bring a suspect to justice in this case. Uh, our department, our homicide unit, has a cold case unit, 
that is comprised of two detectives who routinely go through unsolved homicides and they take a fresh look at homicides that were unable to be brought to a conclusion utilizing modern techniques. So for instance, 40 years ago, DNA technology didn't exist. Uh, there's a lot of advancements in investigative techniques that allows these detectives to utilize those new technologies, apply them to old cases to see if it can help bring justice in these. What the detectives uncovered that night at the scene is that he had been stabbed multiple times uh, while he was still inside of his kitchen. Um, there wasn't, it didn't appear to be a sign of a forced entry to the house and that's really what the detectives had to work on at the time. What did officers see when they first came into that house and found him deceased? Sure, so you know the, the house again uh, didn't appear like there was uh, really a forced entry. Um, the officers encountered the victim who had been st stabbed multiple times. Um, really that was kind of what they had to go on at that time. Uh, again, back then there was no such thing as DNA evidence. I know there would be fingerprints that would be taken back then in a case like this, but the technology piece of investigations just didn't exist back then. I'm not very well myself, and uh, I have uh, a lot of problems, and I think it's that if only I could find out, you know, but it's, it's, uh, I don't know, it's just, I just can't believe that anybody would do that. and. What I feel horrible about right now is my husband and I were in that neighborhood and I was going to stop in and see how he was doing. And I thought, oh no, I'm tired, I'll go home. But that was the night that he was murdered. And uh, to this day, I, I just it just bothers me so that maybe I could have saved his life. Would you say that this is your dying wish to get it solved? Oh, yes, yes. I said, I don't want to die. I'm going to be 95 in a few more days. And I said, it's getting close. And I don't want to, I just want, because, you know, I feel guilty because I should have gone over there the day that he was murdered. And I just didn't do it. And uh, I, I, uh, I'm just, I feel, I don't know, maybe I would have been killed then too. She has stayed absolutely passionately involved in this to the point that uh, almost every month, every two months, she will reach out to the cold case detectives asking if there's been any updates. She'll share any information that she knows or things that she remembers or recollections. You know, and really it, it just goes to speak to the tremendous suffering that loved ones experience when somebody is killed and taken from them and somebody's not held accountable. So, you know, she's an absolute credit to her family, to her brother, and we encourage people in any unsolved cases to keep that passion, keep that drive. It, it's that persistence that leads to closure in these cases. In this case, he was stabbed multiple times from what I have heard. Um, that kind of equals a, a crime of passion. Does that indicate that he may have known the person who killed him personally? Uh, that is definitely one possibility. You know, it doesn't appear from what we saw at the time, or what I should say, what detectives at the time saw, it didn't appear um, to be a surprise attack, meaning where he was only stabbed once in the attempt of uh, somebody trying to flee away from him. So the number of wounds that he uh, unfortunately suffered 
would definitely tend to lead towards either an acquaintance or some type of um, situation where there might have been an argument that ensued, ensued prior or something of that nature. Detectives have conducted some additional interviews in this case and have looked at some additional information that's been garnered. But, uh, you know, again, anybody that is familiar with this person, anybody that might be familiar with this crime, we're just asking for the public to come forward. Uh, they can contact our homicide unit or our confidential tip line at 847-2255. And we've had some success in closing some extremely old homicide cases. And it was just that, it was public cooperation that at the time just couldn't occur or wouldn't or new information is learned. What would it mean for you to be able to see this case get solved? Peace. Peace. So Leanne and I obviously spend a lot of our time going through these cold cases, but we do want to recognize that there are people who know so much more than we do. So for some additional perspective, let's bring in David Schmidt. He's an associate professor of English at the University at Buffalo. He's a crime and culture expert and is well known for researching America's fascination with crime and murder. He even wrote a book called Natural Born Celebrities, Serial Killers in American Culture. When I first brought up the details of this particular case, to Amanda, we were both blown away with this concept of crimes of passion. And like Captain Ronaldo had said before, it's the idea that somebody just got caught up in the heat of the moment. Right, Leanne, I have to confess, I hadn't really heard much about this theory. So I started reading through cases in other parts of the country that have been identified of crimes of passion. I read some law journals and went into an internet black hole of information. She's not kidding. She loves researching. I just really wanted to know more. Yeah, absolutely. So first, we just gave him a rundown of the case and everything we know about it. And then we started by asking him his initial reaction. There's a couple of possibilities that come to mind. I mean, there was premeditation in the sense that the individual may have gone to Robert Bauer's house with the idea of robbing him. But then um, once he didn't find what he was looking for, either in the amount of money or maybe there was no money in the house at all, um, he either got frustrated or angry and the attack escalated as a way of um, trying to get Robert Bauer to disclose where the money was, um, or um, it got out of hand, the perpetrator panicked, and then that could explain the uh, excessive number of stab wounds. That seems to me a fairly likely scenario. So we know that Captain Ronaldo also told us that it could be possible Robert Bauer knew the person who killed him which is something that we're learning can be common with crimes of passion. The, the history of the crimes of passion concept is quite interesting. I mean, it goes back a long way, and it really became um, headline news, so to speak, in America in 1859, when a New York congressman called Daniel Sickles um, defended himself from the murder uh, of his wife's lover by claiming basically temporary insanity, that he was so enraged and overwhelmed when he found out that his wife was having an affair with this man, that that explained why he committed the murder. And the murder was committed in front of a group of people. It was actually very close to the White House. It was committed in broad daylight uh, outside the White House. And so there was no question that he'd done it. The only question was, was he guilty of murder? And he was found not guilty. 
And in fact, subsequently, the part of his behavior that people condemned uh, was that he forgave his wife and took her back in. So that is an interesting case for a couple of reasons. First of all, it establishes that crimes of passion are usually thought of as having a domestic or a spousal dimension. You know, they're to do with the relationship between a husband and a wife or between intimate partners. And it also indicates that very often crimes of passion are committed by men uh, against women. That's not always the case, of course, but that's the sort of dominant idea that comes into most people's mind when they hear about uh, crimes of passion and the a husband finding out about the adultery of his wife would again be you know the classical example now in fact crimes of passion range much more widely than that in terms of perpetrators and in terms of the reasons. Um, and they can even sort of range in terms of whether or not the victim and the perpetrator um, know each other. Um, but what they do tend to have in common with each other is that they're not premeditated to the same degree as other types of murders. So for example, an altercation may begin that ends with the death of the individual, but the person that committed the crime had no intention or plan to kill that person at the beginning of the episode. This was a situation that escalated rapidly, that got out of control, and that ends uh, with the death. And so then it's the job of the legal system to determine whether that should be homicide or a lesser charge such as manslaughter. Um, one of the other big questions that I had mentioned to you um, in my email um, that I kind of wanted to follow up on is that one of the claims from police is that, you know, back then they didn't have as much of the ability to take fingerprints or get that kind of DNA evidence. Yeah. And again, obviously, my knowledge of crime is a lot more limited than yours. But that was just kind of shocking because I know of, you know, the bigger serial killers who happened in the 70s and 80s. And was that true? Was that not really something that they used back then? Or is it because it was Buffalo and not like a big case? Or how does that kind of work? Well, I think it's absolutely true. I mean, because you don't see DNA being used forensically at all until the mid-1980s. The first case in America where an individual was uh, convicted of murder due to DNA evidence was 1987. Um, and it doesn't start to get used more routinely um, as a forensic tool until about, let's say, the mid-1990s. The first national database of DNA goes online, I think, in 97 or 98. And you've got to bear in mind that although all of these things were present by those dates, it doesn't mean that it was routinely used. And it doesn't mean that the technology, even when it existed, was uh, available to um, all you know, law enforcement districts across the country. So I think it's absolutely accurate to say that back in 1980, they really would not have had anything um, that they could go on in terms of DNA. Now, this, of course, raises the question of, um, did they have any physical evidence at the scene that later on, like now, for example, they could run through national DNA databases and get a hit? Well, my, my guess would be that if they haven't already done that, then they did not have that kind of physical evidence. Otherwise, I'm assuming they would have already run that through the existing databases. So it seems to me that they either didn't have that type of evidence at the scene, 
or if they did have it, it's degraded or it wasn't available to use for whatever reason. So it doesn't seem promising in terms of resolving the case um, through the means of getting a hit on a DNA database much later. And as someone who's a crime and culture expert and not connected to this crime in any way in terms of the police investigation or even knowing the victim, just from hearing the basic facts of the case, we asked him the probability of this case being solved anytime soon, especially for Jean. Of course, one feels for her in this situation tremendously, especially as, you know, she's in poor health and at an advanced age. And you can totally understand that she does not want to go to her grave without knowing about what happened to her brother. But I have to say that in my view, it's very unlikely that this case is going to be solved because ordinarily in a case like this with this much time that's passed since the crime took place, there's one of um, three things that is going to happen. Um, one, you get that kind of DNA match that I was referring to earlier, where you're running physical evidence and you know you get a, a hit. Um, or a new witness comes forward with information that uh, helps the law enforcement solve the case, or there is some kind of um, confession, be it, let's say, a deathbed confession or even a posthumous confession, or maybe a confession from someone who's in jail um, for another offense and is trying to make a deal by confessing to other crimes. But in this particular situation, given the amount of time that's passed, I don't really see any of those options um, as being viable. And so I'm sorry to say, I think it's very unlikely that this crime is gonna be solved. So Leanne, that's obviously not the answer that anybody wants to hear um, in this situation. No, of course not. And honestly, that's why it's so important for anybody to come forward who may have information about any of the cases that we're sharing. Even the tiniest bit of information can help lead a detective to an arrest or even try and help solve the case. So for this case in particular, anybody who may have information is asked to contact the Buffalo Police Confidential Tip Line, which is at 716-847-2255. And we'll have all of that information on our website, WGRZ.com. While you're there, you can also watch Leanne's old unsolved television reports. And like this episode, we plan to continue to update and expand on the cases that we've covered in the past and bring you new stories every week of Western New Yorkers searching for justice. The best way to contact us is over on Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, too, if you have a case that you'd like us to look into, send us a message. Let us know what you think. And let us know how you feel about this episode. We want to hear from you so we know what to do in the future. You can follow me at Amanda underscore Berg 16. I'm at Leanne Stock. Thanks again for joining us. Join us again next week for another episode of Unsolved True Crime in Western New York. <laughs>